0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Silent Voices podcast. I want to thank you all for tuning in. My hope is that we can discover new perspectives and ideas that will inspire us to think differently. So sit back, relax, and let's get into it. So for today's topic, we're going to be looking at men's pain and how society treats and handles it versus women's pain and how society treats and handles that. So for a little background story that made me kind of think of this, I was hanging with some friends, uh, my guy friends and my girlfriends, and I don't even remember how this topic came up, but we were talking about how when was the last time each of us cried and all the girls said that they had essentially cried either within the last few days if not the last day and me and my other guy friend that was there in the group we talked about how it had been at least a year if not over a year since the last time we cried and this was just such a huge disparity and the girls were just kind of shocked that it had been so long since we cried and I think just looking at crying and tears in general that's usually on average It's usually one of those big disparities between how often men and women do it, even though it's one of the biggest indicators of pain and how you express it. So I think it's just interesting to realize and acknowledge that disparity while we're approaching this topic. So first, in discussing this topic, we'll consider that a source of the argument between men and women is that does society handle slash treat men or women better? when it comes to different areas of pain and unwellness in general. Now, all these topics that we'll be discussing have aspects of intersectionality to them that make each of them a bit more complex and nuanced, but I will not be fully highlighting or discussing the intersectionality aspects because I want to try to focus as much as possible on the sex differences of this topic. Now, in regards to the topic, I will be distinctifying between physical pain and non-physical pain, which I'll be qualifying as emotional, mental, and grouping those two together. I'll also distinguish between individual interactions and treatments and systematic or institutional treatments regarding men and women. So how just one-on-one treatment of pain and how like society as a whole treats men and women in regards to their pain. Now, the first area we're going to examine is physical pain. And that institutional systematic treatment of it. So, when you consider pain and physical pain in this case, what institution do you consider when you think of it? Pain management, pain on that systematic level? Me personally, I think of the medical field, hospitals, doctors, healthcare in general. If somebody's bleeding, you know, you go to the hospital. If somebody gets to an accident, you go to the hospital. If they're feeling pain, that you can't manage at home, you take them to a doctor, we get regular checkups. Pain and pain management is very much covered by the medical field. So I feel like that would be the proper institution to acknowledge this. Now, how will I go about qualifying pain in medicine? So there's been plenty of research on pain and pain management, and some of these researchers have even gone as far as Distinct to find between male and female patients in regards to pain. So I'll be looking at these articles and trying to identify the disparities between pain with men and women. So my credentials for being able to interpret this research and just go over research in general, I did major in neurobiology and physiology in undergrad, and I did the whole pre-med suffering thing for quite some time. So I've done my fair share of research, interpretation, and looking at different studies and things like that so i think i'll have a pretty good idea on what i'm talking about slash i would be able to look at these studies and get a good point out of them so first let's look at an article or study that talks about research on gender biases in pain now according to a research study from the university of miami published by the journal of pain Researchers found that when male and female patients expressed the same amount of pain, observers viewed female patients' pain as less intense and more likely to benefit from psychotherapy versus medication as compared to men's pain. The study found that female patients were perceived to be in less pain than the male patients who reported and exhibited the same intensity of pain. It was also discovered that these perceptions were partially explained by stereotypes held about men and women so essentially in this study the men and women were experiencing the same amount of pain but the researchers were like nah the girls feel less pain than the guys even though that wasn't true and to go even further they were like best way they will benefit from this is some form of therapy or mental treatments." meanwhile for the guys they were like it's cool if we throw drugs at them essentially to alleviate their pain. So I think there's, it's interesting how there's that disparity between how they choose to treat men's pain and women's pain and even how they perceive it. Now, what are these stereotypes that I mentioned that are contributing to these perceptions? So it is believed based on the article that women are over, more overly expressive in society. So women just express more of their emotions on average. And because of this, it's easier for clinicians and just society in general to discount their pain. Because if somebody is feeling pain, for example, like if a, if a woman is feeling pain and Anytime they feel pain, they're just kind of like, it hurts so bad because they're just more expressive with their emotions and their pain. Anytime they feel pain, it's easier for people to just be like, oh, she'll be fine. Like, she does this all the time, right? Meanwhile, men are more stoic and they typically don't express their pain when it happens. So if a guy that never expresses his pain, even when he's hurt, like he's bleeding and he's just like, oh, I'm fine. Like, I'll get over it. So if that guy now chooses to express any modicum of pain, clinicians and just people in general, they, they emphasize that pain because they're like, oh, wow, he must really be hurting for him to be like, hey, I need help, right? So let's go further and look at a research article on how these pain gender biases affect children so according to a study published in the journal of pediatric psychology there is a gender bias in pediatric pain assessment in the study with children the yale researchers showed clinicians videos of a child crying in pain during a finger stick blood test and asked the clinicians to judge the pain of the child experienced now the child's observable gender characteristics were ambiguous and was referred to by either a male or female name. The study found that when the child was perceived to be a boy, he was judged to be experiencing significantly more pain than when she was perceived to be a girl, despite identical circumstances. Remember, it's the same child. Another interesting finding about the study is that it was largely the woman clinician's ratings that contributed the most to the observed biases in pain ratings. So this means that it is apparent that women are not immune to the gender biases. As I was speaking, I know it was probably easy to be like, oh, these people are making women's pain seem less intense than men's pain. It must be guys that are doing this. It must be guys that are contributing to this. While, yes, there are male clinicians Um, in the medical field that contribute to this as well. It is important to acknowledge that the women clinicians and the women in this case also have these biases and they are also contributing to these gender biases. Education should be targeted towards both sexes in order to see an improvement for these cases. So what are some things that are contributing to these disparities and perceptions arising? According to an article on gender disparities in pain and pain care from the Southern Pain Society, the factors underlying these perceptions and disparities can include biological, psychological, and sociocultural influences. Women are more willing to express pain compared with men due to traditional gender roles, and women access health care at a higher rate than men. So it is possible that men suffer similarly from pain, but are more reluctant to admit it or seek care of it due to fear of stigma so i want to give some examples of women's pain being discounted compared to men right the one major aspect of society and one major topic that's been talked about a lot by women and just on social media is birth control and how painful it is for women to get certain birth controls like iud insertions and just the side effects and painful things that they go through as a result of the birth control available to them. So first, I want to watch a video about a woman talking about her birth control experience that was traumatic. So let's go ahead and play that real quick. Here's
1: a story about how I went into labor without ever being pregnant. So I decided that I wanted to come off hormonal birth control and get the copper T, the non-hormonal IUD. So I schedule an appointment with my gynecologist. I drive eight hours back to see her because at this point I had recently moved. And she is like, giving me the talk. You know, has this is your first I D. Do you know what to expect? This is pretty painful. And I was like, I got a pretty high pain tolerance. I'll be fine. So she goes to insert and as predicted it's not the worst thing ever. That's on trauma. And, you know, she puts her gloves in the trash, and she's like, well, for the next seven to ten minutes, you're going to have some cramping. I'm going to have the nurse come in and check on you occasionally. About five minutes later, the nurse comes to check on me, and she's like, how you doing, sweetie? And I was like, is the pain normally this bad? Because I'm feeling some weird things. She was like, yeah, 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 just, you know, give it a few more minutes. It's it's settling it. She comes back five minutes later and I'm like, give me a bag, I'm going to throw up. So she hands me a bag and I start vomiting. And at this point, I start to see black and I'm like, yeah, I might pass out. And I do. Within the next five minutes, all hell broke loose. My extremities went numb. I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel my arms. I'm sweating profusely. She's like, helping me take my sweatshirt off. I'm trying my back. I'm trying my stomach. I'm trying all fours. I'm trying my side. She's progressively looking a little more concerned, but she's also like, you know, some people just tolerate pain differently. Like, we've we've seen things like this before. And then I start to feel something that I've only ever heard explained in movies. I don't even know how I knew what it was, but I knew that I was having contractions. So in between waves of contractions, there was, like, this endorphin release. Like, this bliss for two minutes or so at a time, where I would ask her questions like, when this pain comes, it's the worst thing I've ever experienced. Like, is this normal? And also, oh, my God, it's happening again. Right, so what happens again? At one point, she's asking me, does seizures run in your family? And I was like, no, why? And she said, your hands and your feet are locked up. And literally, my hands are like this, and my feet are locked up, and everything's shaking. She finally calls a doctor back in. And the doctor peeks in, and she's like, oh, we got to take this out now. So she does an emergency extraction, and once I can finally breathe again. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? It had gotten placed on a nerve. She said she'd only ever seen this one other time in her career. And it sent me into labor. My body was trying to push it out. So it was multi-centimeters. I don't remember how many I was fighting for my life. Um, dilated.
0: She said I would have already had an epidural by then if I was pregnant. So, yeah. And the worst part is This is not the only video like that that I've seen on TikTok. There are so many videos on there of women talking about their experiences with birth control and insertions and how it was traumatic and like the worst pain they've ever experienced in their life. Some people who've been pregnant and went through labor said that it was worse than going through labor and having their child. So, yeah, and it's. Sad because in this video, as in many others, the clinician very much discounted the woman's pain. They were like, oh, you know, you're tough. You can get through it. It's not that much pain. I'm sure you've handled more pain than this before. Just anything possible to excuse the fact that they were feeling a bunch of pain and that they needed help, essentially. And I think that's just sad because it just shows how much pain that we put our women through and have normalized it. They're like, oh, you're fine. And the amount of pain that a woman needs to experience in order for us to feel concerned slash want to do something about it, the threshold is high. And it continues to be high as things like this continue to happen. So, yeah, that, that story was very sad to hear the first time i saw that video now in contrast to that i want to talk about the study on male birth control that happened not too long ago so there was a recent male birth control study published in the journal of clinical endocrinology and metabolism where the study was scratched because the men were experiencing side effects that women have been dealing with in their birth controls for years most common side effects stated was acne now, according to that study, I quote, this decision to terminate the trial was based on the research project review panels, review of adverse events and conclusion that the risks to the study participants outweighed the potential benefits to the study participants. So this statement is honestly where the, the crux of that argument lies, right? In that there is a different risk-benefit analysis when it comes to men using a contraceptive. The push to have men endure that pain and those side effects isn't that big because men are not suffering any bodily or health risks if they get somebody else pregnant. Unlike women who suffer the risk of pregnancy, which in of itself also carries more risks. So because for men, it's like, oh, yeah, if I get somebody pregnant, it's just kind of whatever, right? Like, there are, you know, societal consequences and other consequences that come into birth. But just in regards to that man's personal health, that man's personal bodily autonomy, getting a woman pregnant does not really affect them once the sexual act has commenced. And that's why the whole push for male birth control doesn't really seem that big to Big Pharma and these uh, researchers that conduct these studies because it's like, well, if they're feeling pain, if something's going wrong, we should probably scratch this because, well, there's really no benefit in going forward anyways. Like, why put these men through pain when we really don't have to? So that's just an unfortunate truth when you are considering the, the birth control argument now, I wanted to list some some side effects of female birth control. Bleeding, headaches, nausea, bloating, high blood pressure, stroke, heart attacks, blood clots, chest pain, depression, and so much more, right? Like, I can't list them all, but it's a lot. And they're pretty intense stuff, as you can see. Like, it's not just, you know, acne. And granted, not to discount these men, they're, in the study, there were... There was a very high rate of mood swings and depression. One person actually committed suicide, but there was no, like, direct correlation that it was the birth control that caused it. But there were higher rates of just mood disorders and things like that in this study for the men. But, again, I just personally feel like if this had been a female birth control study, they would have probably pushed past that because they're like, oh, you know, women can probably handle that. So what is the literature showing on how physical pain is handled by the system, how it's handled by society, right? And I think from what I can say, these articles, plenty more testimonies from women and research studies online is that women have it worse than men in regards to how society and clinicians, the medical system, which is what we're qualifying here, treat pain. They typically make women go through a lot more than men in regards to this. So the second area that we're going to go ahead and examine is physical pain and the individual treatment of it. So more person to person. So first we'll consider the biological differences. The central nervous system processes pain differently in women and men. Research has proven that women experience greater levels of pain than men in reaction to the same painful stimulus. We all have these sensory receptors in our bodies called nociceptors, and those nociceptors detect pain. According to a study published in the Journal of Pain, it shows that these pain receptors are typically more sensitive in women. Now, another study by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons describes how they found that women have an increased nerve density when compared to men. More nerves equals being more sensitive to outside stimuli such as pain. So when you combine these two, sensitive pain receptors and denser nerves, that just overall leads to a lower biological threshold for pain for women. Next, we'll consider the perception differences of pain. According to an article, Due to the menstrual cycle, from a young age, women tend to be more self-aware of experiences and sensations within their body. This awareness also means women are therefore more likely to be hypervigilant and to worry excessively about their pain. These negative perceptions of pain can reinforce pain signals, essentially telling your brain that it should continue producing more pain. So because women are more in tune with their bodies and are more likely to look at their pain and hyperfocus on it it leads to their brain hyperfocusing on that pain which creates a cycle that puts them in more pain <laughs> so last we'll consider the hormonal differences of pain now hormones can have a significant effect on many factors including how the pro- um, body processes pain sex hormones specifically have an influence on pain levels and how pain is processed testosterone is an anti so the nociceptors again which is that pain receptor which means that it essentially blocks or lessens the effects of external painful stimuli as most of us know levels of testosterone are much higher in men than women which contributes to them experiencing less severe pain levels than women in response to the same stimuli meanwhile the menstrual cycle has a big impact on how women process pain as hormone levels change during the cycle the skin responds differently to stimuli becoming more or less sensitive so essentially women have this changing menstrual cycle that that affects whether or not they experience a lot of pain or they experience not as much pain meanwhile men have this buttload of testosterone that essentially blocks them from, from feeling as much pain So we can see how that affects things. Societally, masculine and feminine roles affect things as well. Men are more likely to feel that they need to appear strong and repress their pain. Meanwhile, women are more inclined to express their emotions and end up asking for assistance. So how does this contribute to the systematic treatment of pain? So it honestly further emphasizes that notion that Women are overexpressive, and as a result, it's okay to discount their pain because they act like that all the time. And it also reinforces that other notion that men are stoic, and because of that, if they were to experience any pain or say that they're experiencing any pain at all, we should emphasize that and be more on it because, hey, this guy never speaks, so if he does, he must be in a lot of pain. Everything I've said, all this, it's interesting that there is an obvious contradiction of the male and female biology and society's treatment of men and women's pain. So why is that? The truth is that society is very much driven by sociological factors. So honestly, those gender roles of masculine and feminine are very big and ingrained in people, which lead to a lot of biases that we've already talked about those notions of women being overexpressive and men being stoic contribute very greatly to how we all see each other and how the system sees us as well. And that is a bigger driving factor of how they're going to treat our pain and how we're going to perceive our pain than our inherent biological differences. So although technically women are less hardwired to handle pain because their nerves are more dense and their receptors are more sensitive, and they have their menstrual cycle that affects how pain affects them. And men are these testosterone monsters that have less dense nerves and are less sensitive to their nociceptors. We still, as a society, We still make it that women have to experience more pain or we give them a higher threshold of pain before we feel concerned and before we want to act. And men have a lower threshold, even though technically their bodies are built to handle pain more. So that's just an interesting contradiction in all that. So the third area we're going to examine is non-physical pain, and the institutional and systematic treatments of it. As I said earlier, we're going to qualify non-physical pain as mental and emotional turmoil, which we factor all under that realm of mental health and therapy and things like that. So first, we'll consider women and look at some statistics for mental health in regards to women. Now, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, women are twice as likely as men to be impacted by generalized anxiety disorder. According to the World Health Organization, exposure to violence makes a woman three to four times more likely to be affected by depression. According to the Office of Women's Health, women are more likely to experience post-traumatic stress disorder, and they wait much longer than men after symptoms arise to seek diagnosis and treatment. And according to the recovery across women's health, women are almost 10 times more likely than men to be affected by an eating disorder. Now these next two statistics, I want you to all just kind of hold it at the back of your minds because there are interesting aspects of these next two statistics that need to be considered later. So the first one is according to women's health Institute, women may be less likely than men to seek treatment after experiencing symptoms of mental health illness. This is due to internalized or self-stigma that results from their self-image being formed by how others perceive them. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, the percentage of women being treated for mental illness was almost 50% higher than the percentage of men, 22.3%, versus 15.1%. So... Let's consider how does this article and other articles like it make women in mental health seem? It makes it seem as though they have a higher prevalence for mental illness and higher rates of mental turmoil compared to men, and that also they seek treatment more than men and that they desire to get help more than men. It's interesting because analyzing another article in Medical News Today addressing how gender inequity affects mental health, the author lists statistics such as women are twice as likely to have generalized anxiety disorder, twice as likely to have panic disorder and more likely to attempt suicide. Although men are 3.6 times more likely to die by suicide. So the statistics track with the other article and a lot of other articles out there. However, the author, who is a woman, she goes on to say While it is true that many factors play a role in mental illness, including biological differences between sexes, women are overrepresented in these statistics as well as statistics for chronic physical illnesses. Now, I found it interesting that she mentioned overrepresentation and the reason why that she mentioned this was further illuminated when viewing mental health statistics about men. So let's go on to view those statistics about men according to a study in american journal of men's health the overall prevalence of mental illness in men is typically lower we saw this when viewing the stats for women but what does this imply it implies again that men don't have as much mental health trouble as women and that their rates of mental illness are far lower than women's rates however the study goes on to say that although both men and women are affected by mental illness, it is oftentimes overlooked in males, and also mental health among men often goes untreated because they are far less likely to seek mental health treatment than women. Now, this can explain how, just looking at the statistics alone, it can paint a very limited narrative on mental health, and it can lead to an apparent overrepresentation of women regarding mental illness. So to look at a few statistics for men, depression and suicide are ranked as a leading cause of death among men. Men die by suicide at a rate four times higher than women. They also die due to alcohol related causes compared to women at a rate of 2.4 to 1. Men are also two to three times more likely to misuse drugs than women are. So what's all this saying? These statistics are very troubling because they reinforce that notion that males are less likely to seek help and more likely than women to turn to dangerous unhealthy behaviors. Another important topic regarding this is that mental health is becoming known as the silent killer among men. And why is this? Mental health stigma, it's an overall term that includes social stigma, self stigma, professional stigma, and cultural stigma the ones i'll be covering are social self and professional kind of like i stated at the beginning i don't want to go deep into cultural because it involves a lot of intersectionality that makes this topic and this conversation a lot more nuanced than simply analyzing the male female perspectives which is important but just something that i'll refrain from speaking about here now according to addiction centers Social stigma refers to the negative attitudes or stereotypes directed towards a person or group experiencing mental illness. I feel like we all know the name Andrew Tate and just other male podcasters like Fresh and Fit and the late Kevin Samuels. These podcasts enforce a narrative among men that it's not okay to be weak essentially and it's if you are facing mental illness the way to go about resolving this is to use the self-defense mechanism that you've acquired over time and deflect the issue into trying to attain physical things like money fame power sex beautiful women things like that instead of advising these men to go about undergoing therapy or speaking to loved ones about their issues and being more vulnerable, it is looked at as weak and they enforce this narrative that if you aren't a certain way and if you don't do certain things, then you aren't a worthwhile man, then you aren't this alpha male, which is a stupid term. And this social stigma affects a lot of men because a lot of men really care about what other men think of them and how they're perceived by society so when influential people famous people that a lot of people respect unfortunately tell them that where they are in life makes them less than or who they are makes them less than their self-worth and their sense of self really takes a hit on the other hand there are many positive and encouraging podcasts for women in mental health call her daddy Girls Gotta Eat, The Self-Love Fix, Horrible Decisions, like I can go on and on. The podcast space, the social media space for women in mental health is a lot more supportive, a lot more encouraging, and that's something that men don't have as easily accessible to them. Not that there aren't any good male podcasts or good male social media pages and counselors and things like that out there, but it is a lot easier for women to get access to this. Even looking at the statistics for therapists, there are like, I'm just stating off the top of my head, but it's very skewed female. There are a lot more white women therapists than there are male therapists. And if you're looking at black male therapists, when yeah, let's not even get into that. So yeah, there's, in, in regards to the social stigma, men typically have it, a bit harder um, just because the social scene for men is a bit more toxic regarding mental health. Next, looking at professional stigma, this occurs when healthcare professionals perpetuate that stigmatization towards their patients through negative attitudes. So remember earlier when I said that in response to women's pain that they're more likely to be recommended therapy Meanwhile, in response to men's pain, they were more likely to be given medication. When you're considering these, this non-physical pain, so mentally emotional, this can actually be a benefit to women and a detriment to men because when you go to a clinician, a healthcare worker about your pain, when you consider physical pain, then yeah, it, it's probably more detrimental to women to always be... Told to go talk about their feelings and like talk it out, and you know look at the psychological aspect of things and give give men medication. But in this case, when men need that vulnerability, when men need to talk about their feelings and open up past traumas and just other psychological aspects of their mind, it is more detrimental for them to be given medication instead of being recommended a therapist. Meanwhile if that's where the women are being sent, in this case, it'll really help them out. Now, the last area that I want to examine is non-physical pain and the individual treatment of that non-physical pain. So, I already stated um, a few times over the course of this that self-stigma affects both sexes. Self-stigma is also known as perceived stigma. It's A person's belief that the public holds prejudice and will discriminate against them because of their mental illness label. And the thing about the self-stigma is that it is very much correlated with social, professional, and cultural as well. they're, They're all intersectional, but I feel as though this one ties directly into each of them in some capacity. So we can consider that males or females If they believe that they're being perceived as weak, that is something that nobody wants, right? Like if you're going through a hard time, if there's something wrong and you don't want to tell anybody about that because you don't want them to think of you as weak. You don't want them to think of you as like less than them or somebody that is in need of help. Why this happens, it could be pride because we don't want to be looked down upon by others. It could be fear. We know that there's a lot of negativity, a lot of stigma, a lot of prejudice in society. And being perceived as weak or that belief that somebody thinks that there's something wrong with you, that's something that you don't want associated with your name, especially in this era of social media that we're in. If something got out there, you never know how how that could affect you. I think one easy example of this is... On pre-med, Reddit, and just other areas of the internet, medical professionals and pre-med students have talked about how they feel like they have to hide if there's something wrong with them, like in the mental health realm, because they feel like that will affect their professional life and their path to becoming a doctor. And other people have even given testimony that when they aired a mental health issue or disclosed uh, mental health turmoil going on in their life that did affect their path to becoming a doctor and that something negative did happen because of it. So it makes perfect sense that people will be afraid to disclose this because I'm sure it happens in other areas of life as well. I think it is important though, in regards to strangers and people like that, we really can't control what they do and we just pray that we run into good people in our lives. But We should try our best to not feel like we have to hide or feel like we have to just not disclose these important and vulnerable aspects of ourselves to our friends and family because those are the people that can really help us through the toughest times of our lives. And having somebody in your corner can go a long way to helping you overcome these obstacles and these challenges that you're facing in the mental health realm. So I want to take a look at another TikTok that I feel is important to this uh, conversation. So it's regarding Hasan Minaj. I don't know if you've seen this video already, but he's on the Jimmy Fallon show and he's making a joke about how uh, men and women interact in comment sections online. So I'm just going to go ahead and play that. Every girl you see in your life, go to their Instagram comments. Every time I go to Bina's page, all of her friends, any photo, stunning, gorgeous, hot mama, love your Luke, <laughs> killing it, I am screaming, <laughs> breathtaking, breath, breathtaking. Tonight, if I go to your Instagram page and I write breathtaking, you <laughs> will block me. And me. <laughs> so I know he's joking. Or it, he he was it was a joke that he was telling on there, mm. but there is a truth to what he says, right? And that truth extends into the mental health realm, into mental illness. Although women are also likely to be hesitant to be out there with their mental health and their mental illness, due to honestly a lot of self-stigma, like we've been talking about, the chances are that it will it will be supported by other women and it will be encouraged. This goes, I feel like, a lot into that social realm where women encourage each other a lot, and by encouraging and supporting each other in this realm, it also improves your self-esteem, your sense of self-worth for this topic, where you don't feel as alone, and you don't feel as that it's as taboo to talk about it. Meanwhile, a lot of other men, in response to a man asking for help, could either be very nonchalant, or they turn it into a joke, or they just ignore it completely because they don't know how to help, or they're just scared to help because they don't have the resources, or they feel like it'll be taken wrong if they try to assist. And I've even gone as far as to see some people react negatively to a man expressing their mental health issues publicly. I want to tell a story about a bodybuilder online that I follow. I can't remember his name right now, but he recently lost his brother and he posted a picture of himself online. This is a guy who's like shredded, like abs on his back shredded, like he's bro is built and very, very respected, very uh, looked up by other men. He's a positive influence in the fitness space. This picture that he posted was him. His body, he, he was, you know, letting himself go. He, you know, his abs were very much deflated. He, you know, just wasn't looking his best. And under his caption, he was acknowledging that. He was saying that, yeah, this is. He it was a side by side of him, you know, at his peak, like I described of him earlier, and where he's at right now. And he was acknowledging that, yeah, he's been going through a really rough time with his loss and. He's just trying to get back at it. He's trying to find motivation for himself and just trying to get back to where he knows he can be. And while, yes, there were plenty of men, you know, telling him, take his time, rest up, you know, he'll he'll be back. And that they still look up to him and he's still a positive influence in the fitness space. This one comment stood out to me just because it was so shocking like I was flabbergasted that I read this in the comment or in his post he didn't say that the reason why he had started letting himself go was because of his brother passing like I didn't know that until like I had to go to his page and see what was going on with him and what his loss was why he was having such a hard time so in that comment there was no unless you had been following him for a long time or you just knew him there was no way to know that the the reason why he was going through a hard time was because somebody died. So in the comment section, there's one guy in response to everything he said about him trying to get back better himself and that he was having a hard time with the loss and that he was just super down and depressed and just, just really down in life. Right. This guy goes and says, what did he say? He said. Stop crying, essentially, like stop whining, like get like get up and get back at it. Like these things happen. You you just got to be strong. You just got to get through it. Like you'll be OK, essentially. Right. And again, this what I was saying earlier about the men's help podcasts and the Andrew Tate's and all of them is that. I don't know, but maybe somewhere in this guy's mind, somewhere in his heart, he felt as though this is what this man needed to hear in order to get past where he's at. And that's the narrative that's typically given to a lot of men in these podcasts, where like if you're going through a hard time, just get up like you'll be fine. Like s- stop crying, like just go get money or right? it'll it'll be OK. And that's just If you, if you ever looked up the term toxic positivity, that is like it to the nines. Like you can't just tell somebody to just look, overlook their pain, overlook the thing they're going through and just go deflect it with some monetary or physical thing that has nothing to do with the problem that they're facing, right? And The reason why I emphasize that he, that there was no way to know that his brother died from that one post is that it didn't matter that it was the fact that his brother died that he posted that. It was just the fact that he was down and he was being public and expressing himself that he was in a bad space mentally and emotionally. Even if it was just that he like lost a job or that, I don't know, that like his, something not as terrible as a loved one passing away happened. Like, it was, it was something a little less minimal. Even if that was still his reaction to that, it would have still been valid. Like, his, his feelings, his emotions, everything he was going through would still have been valid. And it still would not have been okay to be like, just get over it, which is the sentiment that a lot of men get when they're going through a hard time. Which is not okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's that story, and it's yeah, it's just it goes to further the I think the real statement behind Hasan Minhaj's jokes in that when men can't really motivate each other online without there being some negative narrative behind it or without them feeling like they're emasculated or, you know, God forbid, you run into one of these people that feel like it's okay to discount your pain and make you feel less than because you're going through a hard time. Now, in all this, Mm -hmm. all in all, who has it worse, right? Well... I don't really think that's the right question to ask. These differences do not mean that women are weaker or that men are stronger. It also doesn't mean that men's experiences of pain is not as severe or not as valid as women. There are many variables which contribute to how an individual experiences pain and how it affects their lives. Pain is fundamentally subjective, and the levels of suffering that pain patients undergo is dependent on many factors. These gender differences also do not mean that anyone's experiences of pain is lessened or invalid. Everyone's experience is valid. Everyone's pain is valid. I think the question to ask is, how can we make sure society is better at acknowledging people's pain? How can we make sure we're better at treating it correctly and not overlooking something because of biases, because of Perceptions that don't truly exist. So, in saying all this, consider anyone in your life that might be going through pain. Consider anyone in your life that's going through a hard time. Not all of us are great with advice. Not all of us know what to say at all at all times. And sometimes there is nothing to say. Sometimes the right words don't exist. Sometimes it's better to not say anything at all. But in these cases, try your best to validate that person's feelings. Try your best to validate their pain and extend a loving hand to, your, to the best of your ability. Even if that means you just sit with them and let them cry. Even if that just means telling them, hey, your feelings are valid. Hey, I'm here for you. Anything that just shows that you're there, shows that you care for them, and you acknowledge that they're going through a hard time. People don't want to feel alone, and when you're in pain, that is one of the times in life where I feel like people feel the most alone, and that's not talked about a lot. Having people there for you, having people in your life that support you, that just show you that they love you is very important and goes such a long way in helping you get past those dark times. So I encourage you to be there for the people in your lives. I encourage you to love each other and to the best of your ability, just try to extend that loving hand. So thank you for listening. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for tuning in and continuing to support me. I'd like you to f- follow me on my socials. Um I, let me think. What, where are my socials again? Um so follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at my dear Ollie. And you can follow the podcast and support the podcast on TikTok and Instagram at Silent Voices Podcast. I'm working on video podcasts, so soon you'll be able to watch on YouTube as well. So I'll keep you guys updated on how that's going and when that is up and running. But yeah, thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you all have a blessed one. And see you next time.